The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I rejoice in the opportunity to be with you again. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. This is our second week in this text. And it may be second out of three. We will see. There's just some glorious truths in this text that I I am eager to to see, and um, so I'm going to pray one more time that God would open up His Word. Father, I thank You that You speak clearly, that though Isaiah's audience did not have eyes to see, You've given us eyes to see. Though they didn't have ears to hear, You've removed our deafness so that we can listen and it can change us. May this ancient word reach into our hearts so that we can be filled with joy, inexpressible, filled with glory, filled with awe at a God who's been working throughout time to save us. Through Jesus I pray, amen. All right. So far, chapter 11, here's where we've been. The promise of a spirit-empowered king. We saw his new creational existence, he's like the beginning of this new Garden of Eden. The old garden, destroyed. But that's never God's final word. Curse is not the final word. Blessing is, and so he promised that there would be a new shoot after the fire, a new sprout out of the line of Jesse, and it is the ultimate son of David, and then all of us who get to identify ourselves with him. His power source and its result was the spirit of the Lord. We see that in verse 2. And then his ethic, one of righteousness. So now we come here. The impact of this spirit-empowered king's life. And here's where we we ended. I pick up in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw with the ox The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Perfect peace is first described in verses 6 through 8, and then unpacked. In verse 9. Now, huh, I'm missing something. It was an image, it was there. I, I know it was there. It says the image is currently, cannot currently be displayed. 
too bad. <laughs> All right. Let's go without the image. Verse 6. We see here a picture that many of us are familiar with. We've read it before where all of a sudden these beasts that don't usually dwell together will dwell together. And what it says is, it it associates this experience of wolf dwelling with lamb, leopard lying down with a goat, it it associates it with the time when this spirit-empowered deliverer that we know of as Jesus will be reigning. So already that should just make us step back and pause and say, huh, how does that relate to the fact that he's already reigning now? There's two parts here. The cohabitation of all wild and domesticated animals under the direction of a child. Notice that there's animals and a child in both of these parts. So it says, the wolf, wild, Lamb, domesticated. Leopard, wild. Young goat, domesticated. Lion, wild. Calf and fattened calf, domesticated. They'll all be dwelling together. And then it says at the end of verse 6, a little child will lead them. We might expect that with the lamb or the young goat or the calf. But it's a little more rare with the lion and the leopard the wolf. A little child. Second, the lack of... So so they're cohabitation, co-inhabiting the same location. And then in verses 7 and 8, it speaks of food. The cow and the bear, maintaining that domesticated and wild, the cow and the bear shall graze. Bear is not a devourer, it's a vegetarian. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wean child, ESV, shall put his hand on the adder's den. So these two parts... And I want to know, what is this about? What exactly is it getting at? So, we start to ponder. Number one, the child. Yesterday, I had the joy of um, going to a seminar downtown, being taught by one of my former professors. And it was just a delight. Uh, Peter Gentry, one of my doctoral fathers at Southern Seminary was in town giving a seminar at All Nations Baptist Church in North Minneapolis, and he's in the process of writing an Isaiah commentary, and I anticipate it will be my go-to text. Um, And I had the chance to ask him about this verse, because just before Christmas, it was one of my discoveries, and to my dismay, I look at all the Isaiah commentaries and well, you can just keep this in mind. They don't go where I'm going. So, here's where I'm going. I see a child mentioned in verse 6. A nursing child in verse 8. A wean child in verse 8. And I say, this isn't the first time in this book I've read about a child. 
all in the context of this spirit-empowered king who will rule on God's behalf, enjoying the very presence of God with him. Now I read once again, once again, about a child. Back in chapter 7, verse 14, we learn that, Israel, I'm going to give you a sign. Hear this, O house of David. See the connection with our text. A root shall rise from Jesse. O house of David, listen up. Chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord will give you a sign for the whole nation. It's plural. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And she shall call him God with us. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's chapter 11. This, this one. So much so that his own identity will be that of God himself. Chapter 9, verse 6. Turn over there. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll bear four names. This Emmanuel, God with us, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His identity will be that of God himself. And it's a child who will have the government upon his shoulders. From his birth, destined To have all authority in heaven and on earth. And now I come to this text in chapter 11. Or, sorry, in chapter 9. One more connection. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. It's a David throne. And now we come to chapter 11. From the stump of Jesse, or verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all peoples. This new garden, new creation that's being birthed out of the darkness. The curse, the shadows are fleeing because the dawn has come. The light is intruding. That was the language of chapter 9 when we read, There will be no gloom for her who is in darkness. He had brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So so it's as if, remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And it was light. Overcoming that darkness. So darkness has returned in Israel's history. And what's true in Israel at this time is merely a picture of what's already true in the whole world. Darkness. Separation from God. Sin has made it so. And into that world comes a young child who is identified with God himself. And it says here, he will lead This child will lead the lion and the calf, the leopard and the goat, the wolf and the lamb. A child will lead them. So is the point just that 
in a context of danger, even the most vulnerable will be safe, or is there more at stake here? That it's not just to point out a vulnerable creature, as fragile as a little child, but rather to identify this child, even in his fragile state, he'll have more authority and more power and more influence and more significance than any power or evil a wild beast could bring. We keep reading. It says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Now, we don't see it in the ESV, but if you were to look up in your Goodrick Kohlenberger concordance or Strong's concordance, you would see the word yonake from the verb yanak, to nurse or to suckle. Now, the word yonake only shows up one other time in the entire book, and that happens to be in Isaiah 53. What happens in Isaiah 53? Suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 opens with this same word that the ESV here translates nursing child, but in Isaiah 53 verse 2, it translates it as a young plant. Fragile, needy, a young plant. It's the exact same word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The announcement goes forth. Good news. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here the Messiah is being portrayed as the very arm of God. He, he grew up before the Lord like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That is the tender shoot, the young plant, or the nursing child in our passage. It's the only two times in the book where the term shows up. And so it suggests to me that at least the reader who's walking through the story reading about a child in the context of garden imagery, at least by Isaiah 53, you'd see this term show up and it would shoot you back into this text and you'd, you'd be making connections. This is not just any child. This is a specific child upon whom all of our hopes rest. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, the weaned child Now, here, what is future in 8a 
is changed to past as if already being realized in 8b. You don't see it in the ESV. It leaves it in the future, but very literally, and the wean child has stretched out his hand over the adder's den. Now, what we had learned was that back in chapter 7, this virgin who had conceived the child, this child would eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse good and evil and to choose the good. For before this boy knows how to refuse good and choose the evil, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. He would be growing, maturing. And his life would be a sign to the rest of the world, indeed to to Israel in particular, that God's judgment, by the time that he would have arrived, God's judgment will have already come. And yet what it says here is that the weaned child, as if so fragile, so small, will have already stretched out his hand over the adder's den, ready to grab it. Now we have here cobra and adder. What are we talking about? Snakes. My wife hates snakes. When we got married, her two biggest fears, tornadoes and snakes. And that has colored and created very funny stories in our marriage over the last 24 years, 23 years. Certain, certain stories. Um, But these aren't just snakes. Snakes play a massive role in our Bibles, don't they? Where do we see this dragon-like figure show up first? In the garden. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. And yet in the rest of Genesis, we don't read anything about snakes. Instead, what we read about is a line of Cain that bears in its identity a God hostility that is linked to the same God hostility that was evident in the serpent's life. And that family tree of Cain, which dominates a main line of the genealogies in Genesis, creates all the enemies around Israel. But they're not only enemies, they are the very people groups that through Abraham, all of them would be blessed. They are called the families of the world. And through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They're not only enemies, they are the mission field that would be the ultimate objects of God's affection through his serpent slayer. And then what we would have is people from every tongue and tribe and nation becoming the bride of the serpent slayer. So that, as my colleague Joe Rigney likes to say, the entire Bible's plot line is summarized as this, kill the dragon, get the girl. That's what the Bible's about. Kill the dragon, get the girl. And the one who will do the killing is the offspring of the woman. And the girl is none other than the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible's about. And here we have this child with his hand 
having already been reached out over the adder's den. And I think we're supposed to see an allusion to this. It sets us up for Isaiah 53, when his own heel will be struck before he puts the death blow on the head of the serpent. Yes? What is the most common passage in the commentaries? My, mine contrasts in that I'm seeing the child as a Messiah, as the Messiah, rather than just generally as an image of fragility. So portraying peace in the future, most commentators, they don't even, I don't even think they think about it. They, it doesn't even cross their commentary at all. They don't, they're not arguing against me. They're just thinking that the point is perfect peace, even so that the child isn't scared of a wolf. And I think there's more going on than that in light of Isaiah's driven passion to exalt the servant Savior. So, yep. I, they, they don't even interact with it. They don't even talk about it as a possibility. But as I raised it to my friend Peter yesterday, he said, yes, I think that is a very good possibility. He's not against a both and, and nor am I. Because we're part of being in the Messiah, in Christ, means that the peace that he's securing and the victory and authority that he bears becomes ours. So that though the devil is scheming, going around like a roaring lion, we need not fear him. And the day will come, says Paul in Romans 16, when not Christ, but we, the church, who are in Christ, will indeed put the serpent under our feet. So a both and, but I wouldn't, I, I think that Christ is there. He's the agent of the peace. He's leading the peace and everything else is following behind him. I think it relates to this text in Hosea. This respect, but uh, it seems astonishing to me that you would be the first one to come to that. Well, <laughs> I haven't read a lot, okay? I, I've just read this. And, and a few other things. But the commentaries that I interacted with didn't even raise the possibility. So I'm sure there's others out there. I, I'm not trying to be novel. I'm just trying to read the word and guide you. And it, it sounds like you're convinced. So that's encouraging to me. That, but my point is that that's, this seems to me the most natural reading of the text. Not to focus on any infant out there but rather to focus on the anticipated infant through whom all victory and hope and help would come to us. In Hosea, it says, And I will make for them a covenant. You remember how God in Hosea has... Hosea's marriage is a picture, a drama, of what's being played out in the more ultimate world. So Hosea has to marry a prostitute. And the prostitute Gomer is a picture of Israel whom God has married and they've gone astray in idolatry. And it uses graphic imagery of prostitution. And in chapter 2, 
Chapter 2 of Hosea is actually a divorce court proceeding. It's set up exactly like divorce texts we have outside the Bible. Laying out the indictment of what's been wrong and then bringing conclusion. The sentence is made, therefore, in in verse 6. Therefore, in verse 9. You've sinned, therefore. You've sinned, therefore. You've sinned, and then in verse 14, unexpectedly, a third therefore that says, therefore, I will lure you back to myself. And I will love you like I loved you at the beginning. And you will no longer call me there's a reversal of you'll no longer be following Baal which can also mean my husband but you'll be treasuring me Yahweh as your life giving partner and then it says this I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. On the day of restoration, it will be a new creational covenant. Overcoming the first creation covenant of which the first Adam was the representative head. And it raises the question, is there going to be a new Adam that would oversee this new creational covenant? And I will make for them a covenant on that day And it will not be only restricted to mankind. It will be with the whole world. That's how the Noahic covenant was. Noah was the representative and God explicitly says, I'm not only only making a covenant with you, but with all the beasts of the world. The beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I'll abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. And I'm suggesting, I think we're talking about the same thing. Isaiah's vision of the lion and the lamb is Hosea's vision of a new creational covenant. And in chapter 3, verse 5, it actually identifies that the leader will not simply be Yahweh, but David his king. He's the representative of the Lord on earth who will be overseeing and orchestrating this reality. Verse 9. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Holy mountain, location of God's throne. On earth, Jerusalem. In heaven, Jerusalem or Zion. His holy mountain... For all the earth, ESV says, shall be, very literally, has become. It's past tense, not future, like all the... It's it's looking to the head, all these future statements, and then two times in this passage we get these past tense verbs. The verb form changes, the ESV didn't represent it, because we're still talking about a future reality, so I understand that, but it would have been helpful to identify. I I think it's portraying this as if it's already been accomplished, not in Isaiah's day, but in the day of the Spirit-empowered king. By the time the child shows up, the earth will have been filled. It has been filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, 
the mountain of the Lord. Do you see that statement? My holy mountain. We've already learned about the mountain in one of our earlier weeks in this class. It was in Isaiah chapter 2. Here's what it said. The Lord will judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. You remember when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up as the highest of all mountains, Isaiah 2 verse 2. And all the peoples, all the nations will stream to it saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord that he may teach us his law. In that day, the Lord will judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Our passage says, in this day, they shall not hurt or destroy. Now what this link here does is it raises a possibility. And that is that when it says the lion and the lamb will lie down together, it may not be actually referring to how animals are going to relate in the new creation. Because in the parallel mountain text that we've already seen, animals aren't mentioned at all. What's mentioned are hostile nations that have now all of a sudden become peaceful with each other. A black man and a white man that used to have friction and prejudice no longer have that friction, but now are able to, to see themselves as united underneath the spirit-empowered king. Now, what raises this possibility further is the fact that in the prophets, nations are often portrayed as animals. Look at here in, in Jeremiah. Therefore, a lion, Israel, here's my judgment against you. A lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because of their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. And the commentators look at Jeremiah 5 and they say, this isn't talking about regular animals. This is talking about the various nations that God had risen up around Israel as the agents of their destruction. You remember the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, the very text where Jesus, where the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title, one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. In that very text, he is a man. He's like a son of Adam. That's what it says in the text. And he contrasts with four beasts that we're told represent the kings of the earth. The beast that has an eagle head identifying the terrestrial kingdom. A lion head, the overseer of all um, the wild kingdom, a bullhead overseeing all domesticated life. These are the kings of the different spheres. And then the fourth beast, more terrible than any others, has all these horns and one of them talks and it gets really weird. 
But my point is simply to say that nations are portrayed in the Bible. The nations of the world, that is the kingdoms of man, that are not submitted to God as king, are portrayed as beastly. The only real human kingdom is the one associated with the last Adam. He's like the Son of Man. Everything else is beastly. He's the only one imaging forth God like humans were intended to image forth God in the beginning. When you don't image God and your kingdom isn't aligned with God's definition of kingship, you're beastly. So it, it at least raises the question, how are we to understand the lion and the lamb lying down together, and the young child leading them. Is the point just to be thinking about animal life, or is it to be thinking about international interchange and missions, overcoming every racial, economic, international barrier? There will be peace across lines that, where there used to not be peace. All underneath this ruling sun. So the general question of how to prophecy, if, if those animals are representatives of nations, are those nations nations of Isaiah's time, nations of our time, or nations of a time yet to come, or all? We're going to have a long list of nations list, uh, given to us in verse 11. They're all nations of Isaiah's day. But I think they're merely representative of the world and all that is against God in Isaiah's day, which carries on into Paul's day and our day. And the vision is that, it, I'll just say, it may be both and. We already know from chapter 2, there's going to be international reconciliation. And I don't think we're talking here about all of a sudden, the United States is going to be able to befriend Iraq. No, we're talking, I think, because the United States and Iraq are not either one um, underneath the supremacy of Christ right now, surrendering to him. Rather, we're talking about members of all different people groups who find themselves surrendering to the king. And whereas there used to be friction between people groups, there's no longer friction. Where there used to be weapons of war, now there's gardening tools, meaning come, partner with me in the rebuilding of the Garden of Eden. Come partner with me in the rebuilding of the new creation as God establishes his global conquest so that the whole world may be filled with his glory like the waters cover the sea. And it will be completely different from Isaiah's day. Intriguingly, it implies that the separation between Jew and Gentile will have also been broken down because the nations are now 
partnering with, surrendered under the same king that was in the Old Testament time, in Isaiah's time, alone restricted to Israel. Um, with that, then, are you saying that we could actually be living in time? Where is, we're seeing this happen in the sense of people from all nations working together to bring Christ uh, to understand. You know, the, I mean, the mission's effort in, in itself is this happening? Give me a couple slides. I've raised the issue of what is the nature of this peace? Now we come to the reason for the peace. And it says it has to do with no hurting, no destroying because those that are part of this kingdom will have a knowledge of God. The earth, not one people group, but now it's moved from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's gone global, a knowledge of God, so that the glory of God, imaged in the lives of his saints, is now being put on display as if the temple of God is no longer restricted to a city, but is all of a sudden where the presence of God is, his glory resides, but all of a sudden somehow this this glory has gone global. As if the Holy of Holies has blown its walls out and filled the earth so that everything has become a temple. And accompanying it is knowledge of the living God. You'll remember when we were in chapter 6, I didn't have this verse in mind. This verse from chapter 11. But in Isaiah 6, when it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory or will be full of His glory. And I said there was no verb in the sentence and and every other passage that I was aware of always treated this idea that the glory of God would fill the earth as something that was future, associated with the Messiah like this passage here. What did Isaiah see? He saw the Holy One seated on his throne. What did he hear? Holy, 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 the whole earth will be filled with my glory. When the Messiah shows up, I think that's what the text is saying. And he's just built the connection between Isaiah 6 and this passage with that language of the full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant text, I'll make a new covenant with my people. The laws within them, I will write it on their hearts, and they will all know me from the least to the greatest. No disparity in the New Covenant community. You won't need to say, know the Lord. In Isaiah's day, there were lots of people in the covenant that didn't know the Lord. The old covenant was filled with rebels who were in hell. An Israel that was called 
to do what Adam was supposed to do, image God, but an Israel that ended up being what Adam was, a rebel. They didn't know him. And the contrast of the new covenant is that from the least to the greatest, everyone who's part of that covenant will know the Lord. Everyone. And that's one reason why I'm a Baptist. Because covenant membership is not realized by being born physically into a family, but it comes by being identified with the covenant mediator, the Spirit-empowered king. There is no new covenant apart from the new covenant mediator, and our link with him is only done by conscious faith. So that everyone who's linked with the new covenant mediator from the least of them to the greatest, knows the Lord. So that there is not the need to teach someone, you need to get saved. If they're in the new covenant community, the knowledge of God is already experienced. And the glory of God is being tasted. From Kodiak, Alaska, all the way down to the lowest parts of Peru where the church of Jesus Christ is growing. So I'm trying to get the connection to that's why I'm Baptist. Yeah, why I'm Baptist is because a Presbyterian will baptize an infant who has not himself or herself identified by faith with the new covenant mediator, and yet they claim that they're part of the new covenant. So a Presbyterian, by its nature, has a covenant community that looks a lot like the old covenant community. There's remnant and there's rebel, both within the, co- the new covenant community. Now, I'm not, I don't want to confuse the fact that we have lots of people, and maybe even some in this room, who are themselves, lots of people at Bethlehem in, that, that attend on the weekends or on Wednesday nights, who are themselves not part of the new covenant. You can be an attender and not a member. And by that, I'm using language a little bit different than... We we have attenders who are also part of the New Covenant who aren't members of Bethlehem Baptist. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. Baptism and membership are not separated in any way in the New Testament. To be baptized means you're a member in Christ. You're a member of the New Covenant community. And if at any time it is recognized that you, that your profession of faith is not authentic, then what we do as Baptists is declare you were never part of the New Covenant community. It looked like you were, but you were never part of it. You said that you were upon your profession, but now you've identified that you were really a... a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so then we identify, so so there's, on the surface, an evident challenge that we have members who are not members on the books. But in God's eyes, and that's where the new covenant community is defined, There is only one new covenant community 
And it is those who are in Jesus. And that's what Baptists would believe. But a Presbyterian, by his very nature, doesn't have that view of the New Covenant. He has a view of the New Covenant that is very similar to the Old. Because everyone in the New Covenant community knows the Lord. And a Presbyterian can't say that about the New Covenant community. Because there are many infants who are part of the New Covenant community, according to a Presbyterian, that do not personally know the Lord. That's what I'm saying. And I think, in the, I think Jeremiah 31, 34, would call, when the New Covenant goes operative, which it has in Christ... What that means is that anyone who's identified with Christ is part of the New Covenant community, and only if you've identified with Christ are you part of the New Covenant community. And Hebrews 3.14 would say, we've come to share in Christ, this New Covenant mediator, if we hold firmly to the end the commitment we had at the beginning, which means you have to have a commitment at the beginning, and you have to persevere to the end in order to identify that you were part of the New Covenant community. And that's not my parents' commitment, it's my commitment. That's, those are the ones who share in Christ, and that's what makes me a Baptist. Does that con- connect some dots? Yeah, only in the context of comparing to a Presbyterian. And that, 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 was, that was what I was doing. No, and I didn't know that, because in, in what you were sharing, I didn't see the... And I'll say a Baptistic, that's what I'm referring to, why I'm Baptistic, why I hold to a credo-Baptistic view of the church. It doesn't mean that I couldn't be Evangelical Free or Christian Missionary Alliance or some other Baptistic denomination. Just distinguishing between credo-Baptistic, those who say I have to believe in something in order to be part of the community, versus a paedo-Baptistic, paideia, child, which thinks you can let a child be part of the New Covenant community in light of at least one parent's saving trust in the Lord. This knowledge of God, this raises this question. When? Right? And Isaiah is going to help us, and then Paul is going to help us. But Isaiah is going to say this. This is Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then he goes on, and you can turn there if you want. I'm not hiding verses on purpose. This entire section, I believe, is governed by new heavens and new earth imagery. The very final statement of which is, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food. Ever remembering that Genesis 3.15, or Genesis 3.14 punishment. On the ground, on the dust, you shall go all the days. An image of submission, of punishment, of being brought low, down in the dust. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There it is again. And in Isaiah 65, this language which we read about is associated with the spirit-empowered king... 
in the day when all the nations will gather to this new Jerusalem and there will be perfect peace, it's associated with new heavens and new earth. And new heavens and the new earth is the language of what book? Revelation. Then I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Has that happened yet? And the sea was no more. No longer will there be anything accursed, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants, serpents, servants, big difference, servants will worship him. So that's something we're still anticipating. And yet Paul also says, if anyone is in Christ, he is already a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now my diagram, maybe it'll show up if I do it this way. Maybe. I don't know why it didn't show up. No, it's gone. Very weird. It was my overlap of the ages diagram. Um, let me... I could certainly find it, but it's the, it's the diagram of the old age in Adam, and the intrusion of the future, new age, new covenant in Christ. Overlap of the ages, also known as the age of the church. This is the future when the influence and penalty of Adam will no longer be seen. But we're in here. Christ's first appearing as suffering servant, second appearing as conquering king, and we're in this realm where the future has already come. New creation has been birthed. Now just look with me at verse 10. In that day, that is the day when the child will play over the cobra's Den, in the day when the spirit-empowered king will rise, in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner or a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, his resting place shall be glorious. Root of Jesse? Who are we talking about? Jesus. Signal or banner? The language here is, is um, like a war banner where it's on a big pole and there's a giant flag and it's giving notice to someone about something. We see it in chapter 5 where God says He raises His signal for the nations far away identifying, here's the place that I've called you to come and destroy. And that place is Israel. They become the object of God's wrath. 
And the way that he tells the nations is he raises his war banner. But that's not the only time we see the banner. Isaiah 62 Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. What is it proclaiming? Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. This is the salvation banner. You want help? Come this way. There's a slain serpent on the pole. Look to him in faith. And you'll be freed from your plague. And when we read here, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples. Notice that it's plural, peoples. We're talking about the very nations and peoples of Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. Where both peoples and nations are used side by side. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain in that day. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The nations shall flow to it. Peoples shall come. We're talking about Gentile nations here. And they'll come to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And now even though he wasn't mentioned in Isaiah chapter 2, Now the Messiah takes center stage. In Isaiah chapter 2, it's a latter days prophecy. This is the latter days, not just this. The latter days is the entire period birthed out of Christ's resurrection. You remember Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Joel says that In that future day of the Lord, what's going to arise out of it is that old men will prophesy, young men will dream dreams. The Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Well, Peter picks that up to explain what's happening at Pentecost, and he adds a statement that's not part of Joel. As it is written, in the latter days, the Spirit of the Lord will be poured out. That is the latter days. Are we living in the end times? Peter would say, yes. Or the book of Hebrews, how does it begin? Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Already begun. The latter days intruding into the present in Jesus. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now what's amazing here is Paul. In Romans 15, and we'll end here today. In Romans 15, he actually cites our passage, Isaiah 11 verse 10. He cites it in his ESV, which was called the Septuagint. It was his Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's preaching to people who didn't know Hebrew. And he's using God's word, just like I am today. So he cites his Greek standard version called the Septuagint. But it's this passage. And it comes in a whole list of texts where he says, 
Welcome one another. Jew, Gentile, no barriers anymore. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The whole earth filled with the glory of God. Because I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm promises given to the patriarchs that weren't restricted to God's blessing being to the Jews, but that through Abraham all the world, all the families of the earth, all the nations, Gentiles, would be blessed. So Jesus came working among the Jews in order that the promises to the patriarchs might be fulfilled. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, now a citation from Psalm 18. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, this time from Deuteronomy 32.43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, this time from Isaiah 11.10. Praise the Lord. Wait a second. No, from Psalm 117.1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol Him. And again Isaiah says, here's our passage, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, to him will the Gentiles hope. So we ask about timing. Our passage says, The Spirit-empowered king will rise, the lion will lay down with the lamb, There will not be hurt or destruction on God's holy mountain. At that time, the root of Jesse will rise as a banner among the nations. And they'll gather to him. And Paul says, that's what Jesus came to inaugurate. And that's why I'm engaging the Gentiles today. It's why you and I get to enjoy relationship with the living God today. Why our eyes can be opened rather than living in darkness. Why hope can be given instead of living in the night. Today. Because there's an all-readiness. It's not over yet. It's only dawn. It's not noon. But the dawn has come. The light has dawned. And with that dawning comes peace. Between you and between me between ones who used to be Sikhs and Muslims, those that were JWs and Mormons, surrendering, having eyes open to the living God. And now we who were once lost, sinners ourselves, can now embrace them as brothers and sisters in Jesus if they've surrendered to Him by faith. And there's peace. Okay, so this is raising up in my mind um, about peace. Because I have friends, you know, who, who claim there should be no war because the Bible says we should seek peace. But the peace we're talking about in this passage as you're explaining it is the peace that believers in Christ will have with one another because of the Christ, because of the life that we're in Christ. Do these, the peace spoken up here, does it speak about secular countries, peace between each other? I don't think that we can have the kind of peace that Isaiah is envisioning apart from the kingship of Christ. 
That's, that's the basis of the peace. He's the one who's leading the nations in peaceful relationship. What we should pray for is a surrender to the global king who is over all things. But remember, in, Isaiah, in Peter's language, we're in exile. That's this period. Our citizenship is in heaven. And in the alreadiness, we have an identity up here that will be realized in space and time on a physical planet with an embodied God in the future. We will see him. And he will be with us. And this creation, which is groaning, longing for the day when the sons of God will be revealed. The wheat will be separated from the tares. The sheep will be separated from the goats. And the peace that you and I enjoy together right now is anticipation of the day when it will be enjoyed and there will be no more hostility at all around us. That is coming. When all enemy power will be put down and the peace that we enjoy with God, once sinners, now saved, reconciled, will be realized truly and completely. It's truly now, it will be realized completely. But it's already and not yet. That's how I'm understanding what that, that's how I think Paul is envisioning the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise and also how Isaiah was anticipating it. It seems like you should tweak the, to put the, the crown comes up directly above the cross and casts its influence into this inner lap of the ages so that the kingship of Christ produces peace in believers and enmity in everybody else until the last day when it is imposed on all. Yeah, that... Tweaking my pictures is something that many people can help me with. So, but but you're, you're saying truths that are absolutely right. Jesus already has all authority in heaven and on earth, says Matthew 28. Already. It's not just to come. He already is the King of kings and the Lord of lords already. He has been given a name that is higher than every name already, says Philippians chapter 2. So you're absolutely right. The crown can be put right over top of the cross. It was bestowed upon him in light of his resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you're our help. Thank you for meeting us. I pray that these words would give rock-solid hope to those that are looking at a world in chaos. I thank you that you have made peace with us through the slain body of your Son who is now alive and we are in him. In Christ we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. 
For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.